to you by naturopathicearth.com. Here is certified health coach A. Gregory Luna with Confessions of an Obese Child. Hello everyone, this is A. Gregory Luna. You can call me Gregory. And welcome back to Confessions of an Obese Child. I am a certified health coach. If any of you need any help or any consultation on losing weight, please contact me and I will help you the best I can. I do help in an indirect, circuitous manner by publishing these articles. And later I'm going to package up these part these articles to um, to kind of put in a book to, to tell you, you know, 24 little steps on how to lose weight. So that's coming in the summer when I have a little more free time. Also, I'm probably going to package up my confessions and do the same thing as well, just to make it a little easier than than having these separate podcasts or separate blog articles. But I am very excited that you are back. I am very hyped. Thank you for taking the time to want to come and listen to me. It means quite a bit to me. So today is more of a, a personal confession. Oh, before we begin, let's do all the, the logistics, as they say. You can find me at www.naturopathicearth.com. That's going to be like natural, but take off the A-L at the end and add an O, naturopathicearth.com. And you can find me on Twitter at naturopathearth, at naturopathearth. That's where you can find me. You can always contact me anytime you like. I am recording this in late March. We are almost in Abril. Almost in Abril. The year is flying by this 2017. It is crazy to think it's 2017. I remember in the 80s and 90s and thinking like like the movie 2001 or even the Jetsons or (laughs) the Terminator. All these movies that were taking place in the future. Like what would it be like then? And really it's pretty much the same. We when you think about our technology, it really hasn't changed. Aside from the smart technology, look at our automobiles. They really have not changed much in 60 years, for example. Our factories really haven't changed. The way houses are built hasn't changed. You know, look at our space program. What's up with that? Now, there are people, and I'm not naming names, who don't believe we ever went to the moon. I will say this. I do think it's peculiar how Kennedy makes this promise in 1960, Sputnik's launch, what, two years beforehand, the Russians have this edge over us, and then nine years later, we harness all the power of America to get to the moon in nine years. Then we go to the moon, what, seven times in eight years, and then we just stop going. And then we decide, hey, let's just build this shuttle and go around the earth a bunch of times and build a space center. Just peculiar, right? It's like it's like we, we went to the moon and that's it. Hmm. Like no, no more like future ambition to go anywhere else. Yeah, let's let's send a rover to Mars. Let's send you know the Voyager satellites to take pictures. Let's let's establish the Hubble. But in terms of like people going, that kind of just dried up. Mm. If you look at any of the research about you know, did we ever go to the moon? Like one of the things is there's the Van Allen radiation belts that surround the Earth that would pretty much toast any human being that were to go past the orbit of the Earth. So we'd have to go through that to get to Mars. And then if you look at the pictures, you know, there's a lot of cons- a lot of uh, documentaries on this, how the pictures show that there's wind 
and the on the on the on the moon and there's not wind on the moon and then you look at the tracks on the ground and the grids on the picture and the lighting and who knows who knows and there's the great conspiracy theory about Eisenhower being uh, the the grays met up with Eisenhower like in 1954 and they came up to this concordant or agreement that Eisenhower allow the the grays to abduct us to take our sperm and ova or our eggs in exchange, they would give us some of their technology. That explains, again, how we were able to get to the, the, the moon so quickly and then all of our other incredible technology. I do show my students quite a bit of surgeries, and a lot of the, lapar- the laparoscopy uh, instruments is just mind-boggling. So who knows? Who knows? Conspiracy theories, that's the beauty of them, right? That's the beauty of them. Today is like I mentioned uh, two podcasts ago. This This is the very special episode of Confessions of an Obese Child. I talked about how back in the 80s you'd have the, the, the shows would have the very special episode. Today on Growing Pains, we're going to cover abuse. You know, they always change the music. So back then we always had special episodes. Today I'm going to talk about my dad. It's all about the dad. So the name of the confession is The Cancer Doctor because my dad was a cancer doctor. So let's begin. My father... The world-famous cancer doctor. He was a pathologist. The doctors that diagnosed diseases. He went to a medical school in the 1950s in Mexico and later received a job offer at one of the most prestigious cancer hospitals in the world. That's how we ended up in Houston. My parents intended to return to Mexico, as illustrated in the names of my two older brothers, who had very Mexican names. They had very authentically Mexican names. And then I came around, and I'm Albert Gregory. So by the time I was born, 10 to 15 years later, they knew they were staying in America, and then hence I got the anglicized white name. Now, Albert, as I mentioned in Confession Number 2, Fat Albert, is a little more common, Alberto, is a little more common in Mexico than over here. Over here, Albert's pretty much like an 80-year-old man's name. You know, it had its peak back in, like, Depression America. And since then, it's been declining quite a bit. But what can you do? What can you do? It's it's like you can't pick your siblings, you can't pick your name, and you can always change your name. But you know, what are you going to do about it? My father, the world-famous cancer doctor. How famous was he? He published over 300 medical journals, articles. He wrote about 20-something books and was the head of the American Pathological Association, the Latin American Pathological Association, and the European Pathological Association at various times in his life. The dude wasn't even European. And it's not like there's a dearth of pathologists around the world like, hey, there's only like 20 of you guys, so can you like, hey, buddy, can you be the Zimbabwe pathological president? Hey, can you be, you know, the the Vietnamese one? No, it's not like they just gave these honorary titles. There's plenty of pathologists in Latin America and in Europe. But he used to run the European Pathological Association and. He's from freaking Mexico and the United States. He gave conferences all over the world. Streets were named for him in Mexico. Pathology residents revered him. He's in the textbooks. In short, he was one of the foremost head and neck cancer doctors of the 20th century. And this is true. I've I've encountered, in my middle brother, we've encountered people, and they ask us, hey, what's your name? And we say, you know, Luna... And then somehow, you know, we mentioned our dad's a doctor. And they're like, is your dad M.A.? And I'm like, uh, yeah. 
I'm like, yeah, because oh my God, your dad is a freaking legend. He is Revere. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know. He's a great man. He was a great man. He was he was incredible. You know, I joke with my middle brother too that he was the model for those great Dosecki commercials, the most interesting men in the world. Now he really didn't look like him. Okay, that of course that's a you know, gray haired, chiseled, stubbled man in those Dosecki commercials, but he had that kind of personality. He exuded charisma and charm and graciousness. He was a great joker, great self-deprecating humor. You know, he never took himself too seriously. In college, he was actually an amateur bullfighter. He was an amateur bullfighter. We have pictures of it, and we actually have the old bandoleros and the pica. Oh, God, what do they call it? Pica de yo, that's food. The picadores? No. I forget. There's like the matador with the cape. Then there's the guy that comes on the horse. And then there's the dude who stabs and kills him. I think the picadores are the ones that stab him. The bandoleros. Maybe the bandoleros stab him. I don't know. I don't, I've only been to one bullfight, but... Well, I'll mention it in a second. And he participated in the running of the bulls in Pamplona, Spain. Now, I think most of you guys know about the running of the bulls. I actually participated in the running of the bulls, too. So let's go way back in time. Summer of 1995. I am 21 years old, and I spend my first time abroad in Spain. I spent a summer in San Sebastián, Spain, which is in the Basque region, on the northern part of Spain near the French border, where the Basque people are. The Basque people are crazy. They're like this weird alien race that are not connected to any other race in Europe. And their language is all kooky. They joke that they're the alien race, because their language is all like Zs and Ks and Qs and... Franco, the, the fascist dictator during the 30s to the 70s, banned the language and was suppressed. And you know, so the Basque had their own terrorist group, the ETA, for like the last 30, 40 years, trying to, uh, you know, through acts of terrorism, liberate the Basque so they could have their own countries. But now it's really died down. Anyways, Pamplona is in the Basque region. So in December of 95, uh, we went to, on, on the weekend during the, the Festival of San Fermin, which is, um, July 8th? Let me think, remember the song. It goes, Uno de enero, dos de febrero, tres de marzo, cuatro de abril, cinco de mayo, seis de junio, siete de julio, San Fermín. Yeah. So July 7th. So it's it's a it's a festival. Now, a lot of the towns in the Basque region have this running of the bulls, but Pamplona, it's very famous because, does anybody know which American author made the running of the bulls very popular? Dink, dink, ee, buzz in. Ernest Hemingway. So Ernest Hemingway's first novel was uh, The Sun Also Rises. And much of that takes place. It's about a bunch of American expats who hang out. I've never read it, but I think they hang out in France and Paris, and then they they do a little weekend down in in Spain. And so he was the one who brought this local festival in Pamplona to, to make it what it is today. And if you go now, it's, you know, it's eight days of debauchery and orgies in the streets and just drinking and it. So I can't really talk about my father's experience because clearly I wasn't there because he did this when he was younger. Because the thing is that you, no one old does the running of the bulls. I, I guess that's not true because I remember seeing older people, but typically it's, it's stupid young people, right? So you go there. It's in the morning. They cordon off like this alley. Uh, you wear a red sash and a, and a red bandana. And what they do is they release the bulls on the far end. I'm trying to remember this because it's been 20 years. Uh, they release the bulls, and they run down, I want to say, an eighth of a mile, maybe a mile. And you line up in this alley, and there's no way out. And if you try to get out, the the, the cops will hit you and bring you back in because it's a, a question of manliness, right? Like, you decide to be in there with the bulls, you're going to stay in there. 
So then you see this mass of white outfits, because everyone's wearing white aside from the red sash and red bandana. You see all these people coming, so you start running, and you're like, oh. And the destination, by the way, is this bull ring. So you got to get to this bull ring, and it's all cordoned off, right? You're running down this alley. And you're like, Psh, these are bulls. They're slow. I'm going to get to the bull ring, and then I can just jump over the barricade and be fine. Now, these puppies, I don't know anything about livestock and animal husbandry. All I know is these guys catch up really fast. And so most of the people who do this, at least, again, I can only speak from my experience, were drunk. Okay, this is like 8 a.m. they do it. Everyone's drunk because they've been staying up late, drinking, partying, doing who knows what in, in all the, the town squares. And uh, so you're, you're, you're completely inebriated. Now, I was not because I've mentioned how I didn't drink when I was in college because I was like popular people and the people who made fun of me drank all the time. So I'm not going to give them the satisfaction by drinking. So I was this big teetotaler, you know, one of those obnoxious, self-righteous ones. I was one of those guys. So, the, so I wasn't drunk, so I had all my faculties. But I remember one Spaniard guy, Rafi, my roommate, he's like, when the bull catches up to you, don't turn around, fall to the ground. I'm like, okay, whatever. These bulls are going to catch up. They're slow, right? No, nope. lo and behold, they do catch up. Now, I was not one of the brave ones who starts closer to where the bulls are released. I started my run about half a mile in. So I had to go about four tenths of a mile, three tenths of a mile. And because I was a chicken, I'm not stupid, you know, and I'm not that brave. And this is after I lost my weight, so I'm just 20, 21. So I'm running, I'm running, I'm running. The bulls pretty much do catch up. If they don't trample you, um, the bulls don't trample you, the people will. But the big mistake is to turn around, because if you turn around, you're going to get gored directly into the admin, and then you'll have bleeding. So the best thing is to fall to the ground. But anyways, I got to the bull ring and, and moved over the barricade, and then at that point, all the bulls, there's going to be a bullfight later on. All the bulls are going to be killed in the bullfight. Then they release the female bulls, and then you taunt the female bulls, and they run around the bull ring, and all the people jump into the bull ring, and you're all running around taunting, and it's a lot of fun. Now, bullfights, a lot of people find bullfights to be reprehensible. It's an art, guys. If you you got to go to a bullfight. Before you condemn it as being horrible, just go to it. Just go to Mexico or Spain. You know, it's pretty much, um, I guess there are other countries in Latin America do it. But my point is, the running of the bulls is great. If any of you want to do it, definitely do it. It's one of those things you do very young. Just be smart. Basic precautions. Don't have a big head about it. These bulls will kill you. Every year, a couple of people are gored, seriously gored. So don't be stupid. But do it. Do it. So anyways, my father, incredible man, right? Larger than life, world-famous doctor. Um, just incredible man. So to live under his shadow was difficult. It was very difficult, but he was a great man. He had great stories. He could tell stories. Like my middle brother is very good at telling stories. He likes to talk and tell stories. I don't like to tell stories, even though I do go yammer on and on and on and go off topic here. If you meet me in person, I'm not one to tell a lot of stories. I'm more just to kind of listen and respond with a sentence or two. Let's continue. Akin to the two-faced Roman god of doors, Janus, my father had two faces. Yeah, that's where I get January from. He was a conundrum, a man of utmost generosity, laced with a ferocious temper. A beguiling affability complemented by an acidic tongue. Alcohol was his vice, but medicine was his love. And we were somewhere in the middle. <laughs> he loved the liquor. Yeah, and I mentioned in the past why this is. You know, he had a tough upbringing, and I think he turned to alcohol like I turned to food. You know, he loved medicine. I mean, the guy would go to the hospital literally every day. And I'll talk about that in the subsequent podcast on the cancer hospital. 
and I would go with him quite a bit. So let's talk about the Dr. Jekyll. So if you don't know the reference to Robert Louis Stevenson's book, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, Dr. Jekyll's the mom and her doctor, and then he turns into Mr. Hyde, who's the, the, the crazy guy. Again, another classic novel I've not read. All these classic novels I have not read. So, Dr. Jekyll. Much of my childhood is laden with fond memories of my father. Among the little things, he was my assistant baseball and soccer coach. Despite the fact that he was traveling the world one-third of the year, he always found time to be there. Partly because he worshipped soccer, which I'll talk about when we cover the uh, my podcast on the lumbering athlete to talk about my experiences in, in sports. But he would always find a time. And the great thing about my dad is that he I don't remember him ever criticizing my soccer playing or being too fat. He wasn't like, you are... You're too fat. You gotta get rid of this fat. He was like, I'm, I'm told that you you do good. You 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 be belly one day. You're going to be great. You know, he would tell that to my brother and me all the time. Always very encouraging. He also imbued in me the love of opera, painting, and the fine arts, all of which I cultivate to this day. I mentioned this in a previous podcast. I think it was number three or four. Big nerd. I'm a big nerd. I love I love the fine arts. I love opera. I know a lot about opera. I know a lot about paintings. Anytime I go to Europe, I go to all the big art museums, the Prada, the Kunsthistorisch, the Louvre, National Gallery, you know, just all of them, Uffizi. It's just, I love art. My boy Edmund and I, we love the paintings and classical music and all that stuff. So he he really imbued in, that into me. And, and I lament the fact that most high school kids, and you know, I'm a, I'm a teacher, so I'm around these kids all the time. They know so little about the art. See, and again, this is another indication that we're in decline. Because I, I've mentioned the Otto Spengler quote, the famous turn-of-the-century historian. It's like when the, when the lower classes emulate the upper classes, uh, society is in ascent. And when the, the upper classes emulate the lower society, we're in descent, we're in decline. So back in the day, people, even the poor, would, would still know a lot about the arts. And they'd go out of their way to know about the arts and try to keep up with it, even if they couldn't afford it. They were familiar with the arts. You are very hard-pressed to find any student who knows anything about La Boheme or, you know, Madame Butterfly or the Barber of Seville or the Magic Flute or anything like that, unless it's been turned into a Broadway musical like Rent, uh, which is a corruption of La Boheme or uh, um, what's what's the Miss Saigon, which is a Madame Butterfly Puccini one. You know, a lot of them have been, have been changed into musicals. I'm not a big fan of the musicals, and I know people love the musical. I just, it's not my thing. I finally went to my first musical, like a legit musical, when I was in London this summer, and I saw Phantom. I felt Phantom on whatever the equivalent is in London of Broadway, maybe the West End, East End, maybe the no West End, East End's like the the ghetto part of London. I don't remember the name, but anyways, I saw Phantom, and it, it you know, it was good. I mean, I I I credit anyone who can sing. I I just like opera because I just like the fact that you don't understand what they're saying. You got to read the the subtitles. And I just think the singing is better. It's a little more lofty. And again, it's classics. They've been around 400 years. I mean, most of the great operas are really like Verdi and Puccini and Rossini, and they've been around about 180 years. But they've just stayed at the test of times. That's one of the reasons I don't read a lot of modern literature. I like the classics because, hey, if they've been around, you know, several hundreds of years, you know that they're really good. But I'm a little myopic, I'll admit. I'm not a big fan of the musical. That's a little biased I have. A little biased. He engendered in me the love of learning and travel. While we used to travel cross-country throughout the United States, he instructed me on how to drive on the highways. Oh, my dad. My dad was like the worst driver. Man, that boy. 
But we would take these road trips, and I had mentioned how I, I did some road trips with my friends in college. We would just jump in the car and tell my parents we were going to San Antonio for two weeks, and we would go to Canada or East Coast. But we we did the the perfunctory family road trip, and I loved it. My dad would let me sit in the front. I'd be his assistant pilot, and he'd be like, Albert, we're going to stay in the Holiday Inn. Look it up on the AAA book. See, back then we had AAA books that had the lot the listings for hotels. We had the triptychs. If you remember the triptychs, those were those foldable maps. Howard Johnson Hotels. I mean, this is like the Holiday Inns, the old Holiday Inns that had like the smoky lounge you could walk into and there'd be like the bad lounge performer, the lounge act. And it'd be smoky, of course, because we actually smoked indoors. I mean, those were the days, man. 60s, 70s, and 80s. Traveling around the country was great. I loved it. He he taught me how to drive on the highway. And when I mean taught, I mean like teaching through berating all the other drivers. So he'd be cussing. You see this this freaking a hole. He is driving fifty miles an hour on the left lane. You don't drive fifty miles on the left lane. You stay. You only pass on the left lane. If you're going to drive slow, you stay on the right side, and then you only use the left for batting. This guy's a freaking moron. Then he'd honk the horn, and then like give him a stare and all that. And these are all things that I do now. I still, <laughs> I tell people it's like the same day. You gotta stay on the right side. Left is for batting. And then I'll stare. I'll glower at them and just. It's like people aren't, you know, I'm a horrible city driver, horrible city driver. I'm a very good highway driver, though. I've driven to Alaska three times. I've been to every state. Great highway driver, horrible in this city. I literally do not stop at four-way stops. I'll, like, yield a little, look around, go through them. I'm a horrible driver. I always am a horrible driver. I'd say that I'm not the best driver. But, yeah, he would teach me that. I remember driving to Guadalajara in Mexico, and we'd had to go through these crappy roads. You know, this is back in the 70s and 80s. And we had to go through this mountain range called the Barrancas to get to Guadalajara, where, where our family's from. And the Barrancas were on these mountains. And I, I remember they're like two-lane roads, right? One lane going one way, one lane going the other. And you were on these mountains, and you look over the mountain, there's literally crucifixes scattering the hillside from all the cars, all the people that have tum- tumbled down these crevasses, these these canyons and died. And my dad is just passing people up and swerving back and forth. And I mean, I was getting like like road sickness. I mean, it was frightening, but I thought it was cool at the same time because of course he's your dad, right? You think anything your dad does at that age is cool. But looking back, oh my God, I'm amazed I we all survived. But he was a pretty good driver. Yeah. So anyways, I was as a system pilot and he'd be like, you know, we need to find these these Howard Johnson lookouts. Lookouts for the Howard Johnson. Because he'd be driving and I'd be the good set of eyes. And I I felt empowered and I felt that, you know, he that was his way of showing that that he, you know, cared for me and and it kind of emboldened me to to think I was better than I was. Which is all good dad should do, right? You know, your kid like draws a painting or something, you don't say, This is a piece of crap. What the heck is this? Say, This is really good, keep it up, you know, motivate him. You're gonna say this is garbage, and then you just like rip it up. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe some people parent like that. I don't. I don't know if that's the best. And who am I? I don't. I don't know. I don't know anything about parenting. Do any of us really know anything about parenting? You can read all the books you want. I mean, I, I will say, spare the rod, spoil the child. You don't want to end up with just insolent little brats. So you really, you really should. Spank. Now, of course, if we're in California, it's all like, oh, let's call CPS. If Bobby got you spank somebody in the Trader Joe's, oh, I'm going to go do, 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 do. Um, yeah, sir, I saw somebody spank somebody. You know, it's like almost illegal over there, you know? Let parents do what they want with their kids within within reason. Within reason. 
there was about five years ago where the governor here was trying to get all the preteen girls to take the Gardasil, the HPV vaccine, and there was parental backlash. And it's like, well, I think parents have the right to determine what, what vaccines are put in their kids. You know, HPV, you only get it for being promiscuous. I mean, now they push HPV and hepatitis B vaccines like on the, the, the first day your kid's born now, especially the hepatitis B. And how are you really going to get hepatitis B? You're going to be around a lot of blood. Don't, don't even get me started on vaccines. We're like the most over-vaccinated country in the world. It's crazy. It's crazy. Anyway. See, I'm not saying anyways, because I've noticed in my past my pot my past podcast, I always say anyways. Anyways is not a word. See, I'm showing the little inner ghetto in me when I say anyways. He answered all my questions regarding geography and travel. In short, my passion for geography and history are solely ascribed to him. He loved geography and history. You know, we would he would read about African history, Asian history, or as he called it, the unimportant history. <laughs> Because let's face it, I mean, look, we all went to history history class. We learned Western Civ. We come from Western Civ. There's always that obligatory chapter on African history, like let's learn about the Mali, the Songhai empires, or let's learn about the Ming, the Tang, the, the Chinese, or let's learn about the Mogul dynasty in India. Who cares? I mean, honestly, nobody cares. Those are the chapters you skip over. I know that's not politically correct, but let, let's get to Western Civ. Honestly, that's what matters. And I know that is so chauvinistic. Okay, so spare me the emails. The church. My father's view of religion was contradictory. He loved the Catholic church. We were Catholic. We were Catholic for a long time. We, our family's been Catholic for several hundreds of years. He imparted in me the love of church history, the papacy, and the various heresies the enemies of the church surreptitiously introduced. So I could literally spend like a 30-episode podcast on church conspiracy theories. I mean, they are ripe. Now, if you're Protestant, for example, you think the Catholic Church is the whore of Babylon, you know, that the Antichrist is going to come from Rome. I'm not, I'm not even, I'm talking about Catholic conspiracy theories. So he loved the Jesuit order and hated the Freemasons, as any Catholic knowledgeable in history should, and loved a good traditional Mass. Now, it's going to take me a long time to unpack this, and I'm deliberating whether or not I should even go deep into Catholic theology, but we're probably not going to do that, because literally this this podcast would be like two hours, and like two of you would be like, yeah, I'm going to do a rosary while you're talking about this. You know, Ave Maria, Grazie, Plena, Dominus, Tecum, Benedicta, Tu, Mulieribus, That's the Hail Mary line. Because back in the day, they taught us Latin. Back in the day when education was good, education was great. So, church history. All right. Jesuit order, they're one of the orders. They're like little companies that were created by people, and then the, the Pope blessed them. So we have the Jesuits, the Benedictines, the Franciscans. These are just different Catholic groups. He was raised, he was educated by Jesuits, so he loves the Jesuits. And I went to a Jesuit high school in Houston. The Freemasons. Now, oof. I will just say that the majority of Freemasons are good people, right? You think of Freemasons, you think of like old people who barbecue and fundraise. Okay, If you look at the history of Freemasonry, and especially in Europe, in the Oriental Lodges and the French branches of Freemasonry, anytime there's a revolution, you go Spanish Civil War, French Revolution, uh, the Mexican Revolution with the Cristeros, the Masons, the high-level Masons, 33rd degree, high-level, they're always fomenting insurrection, and they're always going after the church. And I'm not making this up. Now, you're like, well, my uncle's a Freemason. 
Look, it's not the porch masons because if you read Morals and Dogma by Albert Pike, which is their big their big manual, their Bible, he says straight out the porch masons, the first three degrees are all lied. They're all lied to about what the symbols really mean. It's only when you get a higher level that you learn about the seething light of Lucifer, as he says in page 324 of Morals and Dogma. So the, the masons... I well, let's just just leave it. Like, anyways, the Catholics are not supposed to join Freemasonry because at the end, it's anti-Christian. Freemasons are anti-Christian. If you go to a, a Mason lodge in in the Muslim countries, they have a Quran. I mean, it, they they don't they don't really adhere to a specific religion. It's just they're their own religion. I'm not going to talk about the all-seeing eye. I'm not going to talk about all these things that we could go into. But, anyways, he did not like the Masons. And he loved a good traditional Mass. At our typical suburban weekly Mass, though, he was completely checked out. He mumbled the prayers and distractedly looked around the church. He confided in us that he detested the modern Mass with its folk music, effeminate priests, and watered-down message of tolerance for all forms of sin, and eschewing the century-long beliefs of judgment, purgatory, and hell. So again, very catholic he sentence here. The Mass used to be in Latin. And then until about the 60s, we had this, this council that came in that revolutionized or brought in fresh air to the church, as the liberals would say, called the Vatican Council II, Second Vatican Council. And then after that, they, they made the Mass not Latin, and they turned it into English or Spanish, wherever country you're from. Around that time, everything changed. Uh, priests started dropping out. Nuns started dropping out. They got married to priests, or they'd run off. We used to have very solemn organ music, and then we brought in Peter, Paul, and Mary, and Joan Baez, and, and Bob Dylan folky music, which you still see today. You still see that music. Then you had the the Pink Mafia, as they call it. The Crimson Mafia came in the 80s. You had this infiltration of a lot of homosexual priests into the priesthood, so you had a lot more feminine priests. That's why a lot of men totally check out of Mass and don't get into Mass. And then, um, you know, in the old days, we actually talked about judgment. Purgatory hell, what's going to happen to you when you die? You go to Mass now, it's it's like run by women, and it's all watered down, and the men are totally not into it. Men respond to, like, angry, drunk Irish priests. If you had a, Like the old days, right? You had angry, drunk Italian and Irish priests, and they'd go up there and go, you're all going to hell. You're all going to hell. And they, I mean, men will wake up, and then, and then, like, men like challenges. Like, you're all going to hell, unless you straighten up your life. But now you get a priest, and the priest is like, blah, blah, love Jesus, love, 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 you know, blah, blah, let's play, you know, mamas and the papas. It's just now like, a lot of you Protestants love this, you know, the, the rock band, mega churchian music. To each his own, man, to each his own. Catholic music was always Gregorian chants, solemn, solemn, solemn music. Now you go in there and it's Protestantized, it's, it's like a mega church. Now, you, you Protestants think that's great, but it's not Catholic. We, we we have 500 years of a certain type of Mass done a certain way, and now in the last 20, 30 years, it's really been watered down. So my dad didn't like any of that. And I don't like it either. I mean, I like traditional Masses where you're, it's solemn. It's about just, oh, I don't want to go into Catholic theology, but just it's like solemn. Don't be talking. Just the priest, don't add your stuff. Don't have bad music. Huh. Anyway, he loved, anyway, not anyways, he loved the rosary, sacramentals. Sacramentals are like holy water, scapulas, stuff like that. And took many pilgrimages to holy sites where Mary visited children. So Mary has been known to visit some places around the, around particularly Europe, where he visited, where she visited little children and told them, you know, to repent, tell everybody to repent, because 
God's wrath's going to come. But, you know, if you're if you're born again or believe in once saved, always saved, you know, you you just say you're Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, you're going to heaven no matter what. I mean, you can go kill 30 people and you're still going to go to heaven. Catholic way is not like you can, Christ died for us, but you can lose your salvation at any time. You can lose your salvation. Salvation is from from believing in God and through works. You have to have works. Even in the book of James, James chapter 5 says, faith without works is dead. Martin Luther, the great reformer, but in the Catholic world we call him the arch-heretic because he took so many souls to hell, he wanted to get the book of James out along with Revelation. And of course, he got eight books out of the Old Testament out of the Bible because they didn't jive with his new his new belief on uh, justification and so forth. So, I mean, the, the Protestants have a, a smaller Bible, yet they never ask, you know, why is First and Second Maccabees out, Book of Ezra, Second Book of Daniel, all these books I don't even know about because the Protestants don't even use them, even though Jesus had those books in the Septuagint for 2,000 years. Anyway, not to get too bogged down in Catholic theology, which I already have, but I could get worse. Most churches have a private chapel in which people pray in front of the host. The host is like the piece of bread that the priest turns into the body and blood of, of Christ. And so we go there and we believe that's the actual body and blood of Christ. Now, before you say we're worshiping bread, read John chapter 6. It talks about the bread of life discourse where Jesus says, you know, I'm going to be the, 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 the bread of life and whoever consumes me will have everlasting life. And, and even in that discourse, John chapter 6, it's like a 60-verse chapter. It's like the longest chapter in the, in the Bible, or at least in the New Testament. You had people saying, are you, Jesus, are you serious? You want us to eat your flesh and, and drink your blood? And he's like, yes, you're going to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And the people are like, well, we, we, don't, we forget that. We're not going to do that. And they walked away. Now, if Jesus didn't really want us to actually believe that the bread is the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ, he would have said, no, come back. I'm being symbolic. He didn't say that. He said, see you later. See you later. So we're not like passing the bread around like the Protestants do and think it's symbolic. No, we actually think it's the body and blood of Christ. Now the priest essentially, not not to get too involved in, in transubstantiation and or consubstantiation, sorry. Um, he has like magical powers. He's like Houdini and he can somehow turn into the body and blood of Christ. Anyway, so we go to the chapel and we look at this piece of bread. I know it sounds weird. We look at this piece of bread that's in a monstrance and we pray to him. We pray to Jesus because Jesus is in that bread. I know it's weird. Anyways, so we try to get a 24-hour presence at the chapel. So my dad's like, let's sign up for 3 o'clock on Wednesday mornings. So I wanted to be with my dad so badly, I asked if I could go with him. So in the middle of the night on Wednesdays, we would sit in the chapel alone. So the church liked people to always be in the chapel to pray. Pray for, you know, poverty and things going on in the world. So my dad signed up for the 3 a.m. shift. So he, he and, and I would go there. We'd kneel and pray for an hour, and I'd sit in the back doing homework or just look at the candles and iconography. You know, for what did he pray? Who knows? Perhaps like all fathers, he prayed to be a better father, a better husband, better son, to curb his temptations. Who knows? You know, that's the beauty of prayer, right? It's private. Did he pray for my obesity? Probably not, but probably not per se, but rather for my betterment, you know, that I'd be happy. Afterwards, in Great Luna style, we went to the 24-hour diner to eat an early breakfast. There I got my three bagels with cream cheese. We did this for almost eight years, and it was great. You know, I didn't go every Wednesday night, but I went quite a bit, and I just loved the idea of waking up early. There's something really cool about, like, driving around a city in the middle of the night. 
It's like you feel that the city belongs to you almost when you're driving around and cruising. It's great. So, but my dad and I would just go like five blocks away to the church. It's not like we were going to downtown. But it was great. The Metafactor. He didn't have the means of King Midas. He's the really rich guy in Greek mythology, but he lent money to those as if he did. His generosity was prolific. He gave money to his morgue assistants <coughs> to help them with child support, rent, or whatever fabrication they invented. You know, I think a lot of times they're like, uh, boss, uh, you know, I need money for, uh, you know, my, my leg amputation. And my dad would be like, go, go, you, you need money, I'll give you money, you know. He's very trusting. He even gave money to one of them so he could start his own church in the impoverished part of Houston. He gave money to his stepsisters who watched over his ailing father. And perhaps the most magnanimous gesture, he gave money monthly to his aging mother, the same mother who walked out on him and his brothers on his third birthday. <coughs> Excuse me. I will invest in one of those cough buttons. So look, my dad had a lot of great things. He was the coach. He was very religious in his own way. He was very generous with the money. Let's talk about the hide. My father was a mercurial man. That's a fancy SAT word for me saying he was moody. <coughs> so you're like, Gregory, why don't you just say moody? See, this is the issue, right? If we only weren't going to stick to like 20 words that we're ever going to use, how are we ever going to expand our vocabulary and therefore expand our horizons? So we want to use a lot of quote-unquote big words that were really not big words 50 years ago, but now we consider them big words because we've all been dumbed down, including myself. So when the mood suited him, if he was not imbuing the alcohol, he was the gentle, supportive, charismatic man described above. However, he would undulate on the pendulum in a very short time to be hostile, insulting, and quick-tempered. My most vivid memories of him were his arrival from work. So my mom and I, my older brothers, pretty much, they left. They went to college, so they didn't really get to see this much, as much. My mother and I would really know immediately upon his arrival what it was going to be like, what the, what the evening was going to be like. Now, my dad was never like the slurring, staggering drunk. He was never like that. He was very functional, very functional. And and I don't, and this this in itself is controversial because I know my brother has a very different view of my father than I do. And I think there's enough room to respect both. My middle brother, who I love quite a bit, doesn't believe my father had a drinking problem. And I think there, there's a couple of reasons for this. One of them is like he he left when I think my dad's drinking got bad and he didn't see all the, the tangible proof, which I'm going to mention in a second. And also, I think he needs to see my father kind of as a a perfect figure. And the thing is, no one was a perfect figure. I mean, look at Thomas Jefferson. The country wouldn't exist without him. He wrote the Declaration of Independence, third president. But yeah, he had a, a slave mistress. You know, I mean, nobody's perfect, you know? So, I mean, you, you can be an incredible great man or woman and still have peccadillos, flaws. Almost all the great people in history had flaws. Would it be better to lambast them and berate them for having those flaws and wish they never had those positions of office? No. We are all full of flaws. So I think the best middle ground is to see that <coughs> people can have different views of family members, and I'm sure this runs in your family as well. 
I see my father as a great man, but he had misfailings, and one of them was that he used to drink too much, and my brother doesn't see that or doesn't want to see that, which is fine, you know, I, I respect that. But that's not my view, and, and this confession is about my view of my father, and it's not about what his view is. But I think there's enough room for both to exist. So, anyways, he would come home, and my mom would greet him, and then we would know if he was in a good or bad mood. If he was in a good mood, you know, he'd be nice. If he's in a bad mood, he would, you know, say something to my mom or blame her for something or tell her to go to hell or if one of the kids did something wrong, he'd say, what is wrong with your son? You know, a lot of parents say this, right? Your son, your daughter, what is your, your son? Instead of saying ours. And then he would turn his attention on, on me, throwing some fat flat, some fat slurs or berate me on one of my failings. Like for example, I had problems swallowing pills growing up. No idea why. I was I was scared that I was gonna choke, but like I, I guess it was like a psychosomatic thing where I would literally like control my throat so I wouldn't swallow. And my dad would get so angry. I mean, he would just get in this apoplectic state. He'd be like, Albert thought that we are useless. You're a fool. How can you not swallow your fifteen? Blah 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 blah. And, and man, I knew he was right. I knew he's. I was fifteen. I can't swallow pills. <coughs> I'm fifteen. I can't even ride a bike. So he's right. But of course, when you're berating someone, it's really not going to help them swallow pills. So I mean, even on little things like that, he would just get on me, get on me. On a side note, I eventually learned how to swallow pills by putting it in Jello. So we used to break them up. You know, you break up pills. You really don't get the the effect because the stomach is, absorbs a lot of it. When and a lot of those capsules. They can withstand the, the the acid in the stomach to get the intestines where they're absorbed. So we used to break them up, and they, would, of course, taste nasty. I think all of you guys have eaten nasty, broken-up pills. But eventually, one day, we figured out to put in Jello, and you can swallow. You know, we all don't chew on Jello. Lots of times, we just kind of gulp it down. And so by tricking my mind and not thinking that the pill was in Jello, I was able to get the pills down, and eventually, I got rid of the Jello. That's how you did it. So he would berate, 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 and then all of a sudden his mood would change. He would just speak to us in a kind manner, and we'd all have this like this like deer in the headlights look. Like he was just like insulting us, and he's like, "Hey, so what, what is going on? Who? What's on TV? Ho oh, oh, ho, Albert! Oh, Albert! Don't oh, yeah. And we're like, "What is going on? What the heck just happened?" And so you know, it's it's not like a form of gaslighting. It's a, and you see this with a lot of people with temper and rage issues. You know they'll. They can just go off on a second, and then they don't. They just go back to normal, and they don't realize like all the destruction they just did, or they don't apologize. You know, my dad was not a guy to apologize as a whole. So his ability to turn on a dime flummoxed us and kept us eternally off ease and vigilant. My mother rarely outwardly confronted him. She was partly afraid of him, partly because she knew her lifestyle was dependent on this world famous doctor. You know, she was a homemaker. You know, women of that generation didn't have the luxury of depending on a second income. Yeah, watch a show like Mad Men. Right, Mad Men was such a great show. But women of the '60s, if their man left them, and especially if the man didn't leave any sort of form of alimony, the, the woman was 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 you know, screwed. And you know, you you reach a certain level of of living standard of living, and you don't want to lose that. So, and my mom really loved my dad. She just hated the drinking, hated the 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 raging, all the raging. So. If in the mood, she would confront him by calling him a drunk, and you have a drinking problem, and telling him that he was hurting his kids with his emotional vicissitudes or his up and downs and reckless drinking. Uh, now, my dad, he, my father knew he had a drinking problem. 
And he got out of DWIs or DUIs quite a bit. He would even tell me later on, you know, or my mom would tell me because he would tell her. But he confided to me later on that he that he definitely had a drinking issue. And he told me at the end when we had that talk, if you listen to um, Why Did I Become Fat, when I told him I, I no longer blamed him for being fat, you know, he broke down and he, and he said he appreciated it. And it was around that time. I don't remember if it was that day or, you know, in similar, close to his death kind of, phase where he's like, I had a drinking problem, I know. But looking back, uh, we definitely knew, like, <clears throat> guests would come over. We never had liquor. We had to, like, hide the liquor because my dad, if he knew liquor was in the house, would drink it all. So my mom would get liquor and hide it in the event that guests came over because my dad would drink it up. Nevertheless, on any given day, you could go through his car and find three or small, small liquor bottles, typically vodka. Because everybody used to tell me, because Albert, Vodka doesn't smell on the breath. And he'd also have breath mint. So I, I remember quite a bit, quite often, especially after I learned to drive. So 16, I would drive his car because he always had the crappiest car. My dad was that kind of guy. He'd always have the crappiest car. He would never have the nicest car. And I'd go, you know, to look for stuff in the car, put something away. And I'd find little liquor bottles everywhere. I mean, the dude <laughs> the dude would hide him. It's like, where's Waldo? But like really easy, where's Waldo? So we'd find it all over the all over the house too. So he would like go to the gym and sit in the steam room or go work out. And I think he would go to the gym, but he'd also stop at the liquor store and get alcohol and then drink it in the car before he walked in. I guess he needed a drink to to deal with us. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But we would find bottles in the house and in the car. My mother never realized that perhaps her depression and anxiety stoked my father's drinking. Indubitably, his mother walking out on him as a child was the underlying trauma he tried to mitigate through alcohol. But my mom's personality didn't help. Her binge shopping, her need to be alone most of the day, her neurosis, all these things exacerbated it. And as with all people, they were both just scratching out in existence, doing the best they could with the baggage they both carried. I don't know if my mom even today has the realization, you know, and I've read this blog to my mom, and I don't know if she realizes that. I think partly my dad drank, you know, from all the childhood trauma, but also because it was hard to be around my mom. You know, my mom was a kind of a negative person. She was neurotic. She was depressed quite a bit. I mean, she had great qualities too, don't get me wrong. But maybe it was just tough to be around her, and so um, he drank to get through the day. You know, we, we, we all carry our baggage. And, of course, there's there's tons of parallels here. <clears throat> they don't get past me. We had to keep the liquor away from him the same way they had to keep the food away from me. You know, read the Locked Cabinet or listen to the Locked Cabinet podcast. We hid the booze from him. They locked the food away from me. How is it any different? <coughs> Addiction is generational. It just manifests itself in different ways. You know, for the most booze, drinking in private. In the car. And me, it was eating in private and in the car. <clears throat> Times existed. Resolution. Times existed in my adolescence in which I detested my father and blamed him for all my fat trauma, which I just mentioned. Even then, I still loved him. And why did I become fat? I spoke about our reconciliation. My father did moderate his mood swings as he aged and mellowed out. I even think his drinking did mellow out as well. And as I mentioned, he did confide in me that he had a drinking problem. In the last 10 years of his life, I saw much more of the Jekyll than the Hyde. Perhaps he was a happier man. 
maybe more content in the career. Uh, near the end, my father did retire officially. He he went to part-time, but he'd still go in every day. And I'll mention that in the next confession. Perhaps he was just too tired to berate, or perhaps I lost my way, and so he didn't have reasons to berate me as much. He did berate my eldest brother quite a bit, too. Now, my eldest brother is 10 years older than I. And he was um, different, you know. You know, My middle brother was pretty, you know, popular jock, just a normal, good kid and teenager. My brother and I were a little different, so maybe that had something to do with it. But maybe as he got older, um, he mellowed out. And maybe he just had no longer any reason to be ashamed of, of his obese son, because I wasn't obese anymore. Perhaps he saw his death coming. He did die of an aneurysm, and he knew that his aneurysm, and if you don't know, um, the, the aorta, which is the largest artery in the body, it's a gigantic pipe. It can start bleeding. You have three layers in the in the aorta and, and all arteries and veins. But if the pressure is really high inside, you start bleeding between the layers, and that causes the integrity of the pipe, so to speak, to be weakened. And so your pipe gets bigger and bigger and bigger and starts to swell like a water balloon. And eventually, that's an aneurysm, and eventually it ruptures, and just you bleed out. And so that's what my father died of. He had, a, he had an aneurysm. So he knew he had an aneurysm that was going to rupture. And I don't remember why he never got it fixed, but he came back from a trip to Greece. And maybe it was like that deep vein thrombosis, that deep cabin, that ca- that cabin pressurization that caused his blood vessels to be weakened. And I, I do remember hearing or reading about people who have heart attacks right after they get off a very long plane ride. But it was the day after he had a, he got back from the trip and he went to a taqueria, went to a taco shop. He was eating tacos and boom, it happened there. And then um, my he was in Houston, I was in San Antonio, but my, my brother got to him in time when they were whisking away the ambulance to the hospital. And my brother did have some words with him before he fell into a coma. And then by the time I got to Houston, he was in a coma and he was in a coma for about three weeks before he passed away. So I was never able to say bye. I miss my father dearly. He was a larger-than-life personality. He was a walking oracle of Delphi, going to Greek mythology there. He just knew everything about everything. He was a well-rounded, erudite man. And he had so much charm and so much life in him and sweet, generous man. And I think he just had demons like we all do. And that doesn't take away from him in any way, shape, or form. Nor does it take away from you. You know, I have a lot of my father's tendencies. You know, I get so impatient, like in traffic, or if I can't assemble something, I, I kind of lose it like my dad does. And I also can be charming, and I love the arts, and there's a lot of things that I, I have in my dad. Now, I don't drink, so that that's the one thing I don't have. But, you know, I we all just do the best we can. So why we, we can't be hard on ourselves or others. I and mean, we don't want to re- be remembered as... You know, there's that saying like you never be well, you never want to be remembered by your worst event or your worst day, and it's true because we all fall, right? Jesus fell three times, we all fall, and we don't want to be remembered for that. And so, when I think about my father, despite the fact that I talk about his alcoholism in these confessions, that's not what I remember about my father. I remember all the other things. His laugh—he had this very high-pitched hyena laugh when he would laugh really high. He would drink and then dance on tables and dance with the mariachi at parties. He would tell the funniest, most lewd jokes. I mean, the guy was just famous. People revered him because he had the personality that we would all die to have. 
He was an astute Mexican Socrates who dispensed non-peril counsel. I miss the little weird quirks about him, like how he could fall asleep on a dime, how at meals he would try to distract me so he could eat off my plate, and how he would pontificate about how the U.S. effed over Mexico throughout its history. I mean, he would always, oh my God, my dad, it's, it's like my big fat Greek wedding, you know how the dad's always like, the Greeks invented this, you tell me one thing, name me something. He'd be like, an amplifier. You know, the Greeks invented the amplifier, and then he would go through some circuitous, circuitous logic as to how the Greeks invented something, or like the the word the word origin of um, uh, amplifier comes in amplificos, which is Greek for sound. You know, my dad was the same thing. It's like the Mexicans invented everything, and then the U.S. stole it from them. Now, to his credit, a lot of Mexican history is like that. The Mexican session, you know, we took California and Texas. We fabricated the the Mexican War so we could take... Uh, Texas and California and New Mexico and, you know, the, the, through the revolution and then just, just the gas and just, yeah, you know, we have effed over Mexico quite a bit. So he was right. But I missed the little things. Like he would eat off my plate as a kid and I would hate it. He would look, da, 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 da. He would look me in the eye and then he'd get his fork to my plate. And I'd be like, dad, stop eating my plate. I'd stop eating my food. Not thinking like he paid for the meal so he could freaking eat what he wants. Right. It's not my food. Just like I tell my, my kids, it's like, I make the rules. You're not paying for this rent. You're not paying the mortgage. You're not paying for the food. I get to tell you what you get to eat. Until you make your own money, you got to listen to me. Yeah, so it's the little things. The boy would fall asleep. I mean, you could be talking to him and like a minute later, he's... I mean, part of it, I think, it was like the narcoleptic sleep apnea he had. But he had this ability just to fall asleep very fast. And he just had all these thousands of little quirks. Like, And you think about your own parents... It's the same way. A lot of them are just so quirky and funny. And, you know, those are the things we got to remember, not the fact that they beat us or they put us down or, you know, they gave us eating disorders because we don't want our kids to remember us for our worst moments. We want to remember, we want to, we want them to remember us for the, the things that we taught them, like with my dad, with the geography and traveling and all that. That's what we want our kids to remember us for. So we got to remember there is a cycle to history. There is a cycle to history. And so... Let's not be hard on our parents. If your parents are still alive, tell them that you love them. Tell them that you you care for them deeply because you don't know when they're going to leave. And tell your kids that too because it's a circle of life like Elton John said in Lion King, blah, blah. Anyways. Anyway, 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 not anyways. To me, he will always be the most interesting man in the world. Eternal rest grant unto him, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon him. Rest in peace, Poppy. This ends my confession. Poppy is what we used to call him, Poppy. Eternal, re- Eternal rest grant unto him, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon him. That's something that Catholics say at a funeral when somebody dies. Because we believe in purgatory. So we believe that there's ultimately two places you're going to go when you die. Heaven or hell. But in the book of Revelation, it says very clear that nothing stained can enter heaven. So Catholics, we believe in purgatory. Purgatory is like a big washing machine. So right when you die, there's two judgments. Right when you die, you know your, your, your soul is going to go either to heaven, which most of us don't because we are attached to some sort of sin, even if it's the sin of gossiping. Heaven, purgatory, which most of us go to to get washed of that sin, or hell. Hopefully you're not going to go to hell. So in the Catholic world, in the Orthodox world, we, we pray for the dead. 
because we believe that our prayers are efficacious. This goes back to the book of Maccabees, the book that Martin Luther took out, where um, Joseph Maccabees, uh, he and his troops find some dead people, and he says that we need to pray for them so they can go to the afterlife and they can go to God. That's where we essentially get it from. But So the the goal in the Catholic world is that we always pray for the dead because we don't know if they're in heaven. It's not like they, they un- un- like unfurl this banner or, you know, we hear this, ding! You know, from heaven, like, oh, you know, poppies in heaven. We don't know. That's why we always pray for the dead, and we, we always tell people to pray for us when we die and pray and fast and, and, and pray and offer up things to help speed our way to heaven. Now, Protestants, call me up, contact me, tell me that you don't agree to theology. That's fine. Thus ends confession number 15, the cancer doctor. So I apologize if I went pretty long on the the Catholic theology, but it's my podcast, so I guess I can talk about what I want. You can find me at Naturopath Earth on Twitter. Please contact me. I did figure out, or I didn't figure out, my partner did here. How do you Skype? So now we're going to start interviewing people. So hopefully soon, oh, you will actually have the ability to interview people, which I will be very happy about. But until then, take care. I know the audio equipment, the audio hasn't been, been as good as the early podcast, but we're going to work on that. Just be patient. I love you. Take care. Contact me. Reach out. Find me. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Confessions of an Obese Child. Make sure to visit us at www.naturopathicearth.com for additional confessions, wellness articles, recipes, and a whole lot more. Leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to this podcast. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Naturopath Earth. See you next time.